Hey, welcome to the Theology Lab podcast. This is Scott. This is our first episode in a series on American evangelicalism that Theology Lab hosted in 2022 to 2023. Evangelicalism. We realize that word means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Our goal in this discussion series was neither to salvage or disparage evangelicalism, but rather to look at this movement and to hear from a number of different perspectives in a way that helps us understand how it has shaped us as individuals and faith communities, and then to open up a conversation on where we might go from there. There's a basic structure to the series. The first two episodes look at evangelicalism from the vantage point of a tradition known as the Evangelical Covenant Church, or sometimes just called the Covenant. Our guests in the first two sessions will have some affiliation with this tradition. They'll fill this out a bit for themselves in the sessions. But even if you're not familiar with this tradition, these first two episodes might be of interest because we think the covenant offers a unique vantage point on evangelicalism. It's close enough to evangelicalism to know it, at least in part, from the inside, but also adjacent enough to evangelicalism to offer a critical perspective of it at the same time. Starting with episode three, we'll be joined by folks like Russell Moore, and then after that, Kristen Kobus-Dumay, Walter Kim, David Brooks, and several others who offer their own perspectives on evangelicalism and topics like politics, gender, and community. In this first episode, we're joined by Dennis Edwards Jr., Dean of North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and Hannah Andre, who also serves at North Park as an associate professor of church history. Dennis and Hannah discuss how the history of the covenant comes up against the evangelical movement. This is a history that raises questions many of us are asking today. Questions about who gets to belong, what kinds of things test our unity, and what resources can we draw upon that offer us a different kind of vision for what church community can look like. As always, you can learn more about Theology Lab at highrock.org theologylab or email me, scott, at theologylab at highrock.org. Enjoy the episode. We have Dr. Andre here from North Park Seminary and Dr. Edwards, also Dean Dennis Edwards from North Park Seminary. All right, we're going to get started. Uh, Let's start with this question. We are talking about American evangelicalism. Just tell me, this word means a lot. It shaped a lot of us and our communities. How do you identify evangelicalism? What do you see maybe as strengths or weaknesses? I mean, and feel free to share, like, you know, what's, what has it meant to you in a, a personal way? Well, uh, honestly, it was not a word that was operative in my formative years in, in Christianity. Um, and I started going to church when I was a kid, like 10 or so. Um, and it only became sort of an operative word in my life when I went to seminary in my later 20s. Um I would say that what it meant for me then was uh, people who took the Bible in a way to help shape their life and to give insight into what God is like, um, and also who had a conversion experience of some sort, some some kind of way they could describe themselves as relating to God. And also, I would say, um, felt that other people should experience that too. I don't, I don't, so so the word evangelism would be connected to that in the sense that wanted other people to share it. So I would say it was my understanding came or in those 20 in my 20s to think that way. I would say now it's almost like the word apocalypse, you know, and it, for the specialists, they know apocalypse means revelation and unveiling. Right. But when you but in the 
to the masses, apocalypse means disaster, right? So, so we, I don't think we're ever going to recapture the real meaning of apocalypse, honestly. So I sometimes wonder if we could ever recapture the, a, a sense of evangelical meaning, something that comes from the evangel, the good news, the message that Jesus has come to rescue humanity. Speak first personally, um, my own family's church background, both each of my parents came out of, uh, well, respectively, the Catholic and Episcopal church into the covenant church. And so, um, well, after a number of other uh, church traditions. So my only experience um, in an evangelical tradition is the covenant. And we'll have, you know, opportunity for further conversation about how those two relate. Um, so, um, you know, personally, I don't have a great amount invested in the term, I think, um, you know, we can have further conversation about what it means in the, in the denomination's name, Evangelical Covenant Church, you know, which is a one of many iterations of the denomination's names over time. Um, but thinking about the word itself um, and its meanings over time and its contemporary meaning, um, it's hard to pin down what it means because it isn't a single group or a single doctrinal statement, um, and it has evolved over time. I think our most recent connotation tends to be from the 2016 election. Um, you know, it has become, um, I think the, the, the danger, the challenge of her is becomes overtly politicized. Um, so even we can go back to like the, 18, uh, the 1980s, um, you know, the rise of the moral majority um, and that shift kind of culminating in um, the 2016-2020 election as well. In fact, um, you know, people thought after the 2016 election that more people would back away from that term when in fact the opposite happened, that more people who did, um, you know, vote for Trump began to identify as evangelical. So I think a real question we have to ask is whether, um, you know, whether that can be redeemed. Um, so, but, but take, taking the term as a whole, I think um, a useful starting point for understanding classical evangelicalism, and you're probably going to hear this like in every session that you have, is appeal to a definite historian, David Bebbington, um, which is sometimes called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. He put this out in 1989 in a book that he wrote on British evangelicalism. Um, but you know, it's something, it's, it's a definition or a, at least a, a cluster of features that is intended to capture the kind of family resemblance that can justify some umbrella term called evangelical. Um, and that is biblicism, seeing scripture as um, the authority, main authority, only authority, crucicentrism, a focus on the cross and the atonement, three, conversionism, a necessity for a personal conversion, and then fourthly, activism, that there's an actual engagement um, with society, both, both in evangelicalism and in social action. Um, so I think that's a, that's a you know, as good um, a definition of, of we, that we have of, kind of classical evangelicalism as we would use the term to describe 17th, 18th, uh, or sorry, 18th, 19th century movement, revival movement, um, primarily Anglo-American um, at least in its origins, revival movement that shaped the United States and its popular form of religion in Protestant evangelical revivalism through the Great Awakenings and so on. 
you both are from the covenant, raised in the covenant or serving in the covenant. Evangelical is in the name of this denomination. Can you tell me just a bit about how is the covenant uh, evangelical? For the covenant, its roots are Lutheran and pietists, Lutheran pietism, whereas it has strong influences of evangelicalism proper as a movement. We, we can describe the covenant as evangelical. I mean, if you think about those four traits, you know, on the face of it, that certainly describes the covenant to say that we're, we're hold scripture as the highest authority, that we're focused on um, the cross atonement, certainly conversionism, right? That we're a believer's church that says with Luther, he says, it's not just knowing that Christ died, but that Christ died for me. Right, that 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 personal appropriation of faith is is part and parcel with um, pietism, and certainly the activist stream of evangelicalism um, resonates with the covenant. But important ways um, the covenant is distinct from evangelicalism, and at all those junctures in the evolution of evangelicalism itself over the 20th century, th those tensions have caused conflict within the covenant because it doesn't neatly align with evangelicalism. And I think the area where it's most distinct, I'll, I'll, um, I'll just name, name two, I think with crucicentrism, right, there's a focus on the cross, um, but it, is, it is, has, has historically been a very Lutheran focus in the sense that um, the focus is on the, God's completed work on the cross. So a, a sense that we're always, um, we're, we're a saint and sinner at the same time. Right, so that there's not the same um, emphasis on like total holiness in terms of biblicism. I mean, this is where we're going to get, um, you know, into more detail, but I think the covenant has something very distinct here um, in holding to the authority of scripture, but rejecting any particular confessionalized interpretation of it. And here their origins, their experience of the negative outcomes of having an a confessionalized state church that they're coming out of loom really large, um, you know, in the, in the imagination, even going forward in time. When, when in the early 20th century, there are evangelicals saying that in order to protect Christian orthodoxy against higher methods of biblical criticism or certain scientific discoveries um, in geology, the age of the earth and biology in terms of um, distinct origins of species versus evolution. I, um, and therefore say we have to preserve fundamentals of Christianity, the reality of miracles, the real resurrection, the virgin birth. Um, you know, then in those, in those moments, the covenant saying like, ah, you know, I don't really think that we do. We can hold to the authority of, of scripture without having to outline all of, um, you know, the ways that one should be led when they read scripture, the, the resulting um, interpretations and conclusions of scripture. I'll say one more quote there and then pass it over to Dennis. But David Nival said, where many interpret, the only thing that is infallible is that there are many interpretations and many interpretations cannot all be infallible. Well, I, that's why I wanted you to go first, because as, as the historian, you certainly would have put put these things in context. So thank you, Dr. Andre. That was that was awesome. That was actually a really quick uh, sweep of a lot of history. Um, uh, when we think about what makes the evangelical covenant, you you hit on it in that uh, in so much of what you said. I think the the, the overlap, if we had a Venn diagram is the seriousness with which we we approach the Bible. Um, 
maybe not in this in that fundamentalist sense of um of uh, proof texting or or um or even being quote unquote literal about everything but there's a certain seriousness with which we take the bible that i think overlaps with uh classic north american evangelicalism i um i think the sense of um activism uh and the and our willingness to engage certain questions make makes us distinct from some forms of american or north american evangelicalism in that um and you already outlined it we're not confessional in that sense we are willing to engage different ways of thinking about certain topics even the way we approach this we have you know our six affirmations as opposed to very rigid doctrinal statements so there's a there's sort of this generosity of, of spirit with which we come to things, even including our biblical interpretation, which is not uh, things I've experienced in more classical forms of evangelicalism. I would say even where we are now that evangelicalism and funda fundamentalism have somewhat, and you're the historian, so you can help me if this is true or not, but they seem to have been merging more of late as opposed to um, living out the distinctions that were present in the early 20th century, it seems like um, there's not much difference at times between what is called evangelical and what's called fundamentalist, uh, at least the way it gets practiced in, in some public settings. But I would say that covenant is, you've, you've outlined well, we have certain distinctions that um, from classic evangelicalism, I, and for me, what drew me was more of the activism of our faith and our willingness to explore questions. Let me pull out something mm -hmm. that has been said here and put it back to you, whether it's been around reading the Bible. I want to get into that a little bit more in a moment, whether it's a understanding of how the cross works. Dr. Andre, you said the covenant didn't land on a single view of these things. Can you tell me a bit about why that when you speak to how the covenant to Dr. Edwards about how it hasn't like how it hasn't had this alignment with fundamentalism, but it's remained, it has had a certain form of openness. Are there reasons behind that? You know, you mentioned earlier about um, the, the African-American church or the black church, uh, uh, Scott, and, uh, you know, we would have used terms like biblical in a very broad sense of that word without using evangelical, yet we would have also seen and have seen uh, a breadth of how we approach certain topics. So, you'll, you know, you have black AME folks who are going to, baptize infants you'll have black baptist folks who will who won't yet there'll be spaces where we're we're together and have a certain similarity of you know how we may approach other other issues so for us there was um there may be some cultural factors that that even um intersected with our theological perspectives but that's not answering the why question so i'm going to leave that for the historians so going back to the ref going back to the 17th century if we think about the Reformation that broke away um, from the Catholic Church, right before the Reformation, there was one church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church. But after um, Luther breaks away, very quickly, there's just like division, 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 division. And we all know that today, right? It has just multiplied in division. And that's because if you put scripture, um, you know, sola scriptura, it's not an uninterpreted text. And so as soon as you do have those multiple interpretations, um, you know, then depending on how, where you stake the grounds of your unity, 
then it necessarily is going to lead to division. And so what the 17th century um, in Europe saw was a process called confessionalization. And that's where the distinct Protestant groups drew up more detailed doctrinal statements in order to clarify, you know, what is it that makes a Lutheran a Lutheran as opposed to a Calvinist? Um, because at least in, um, you know, in the Holy Roman Empire at the time, at least after, well, don't get into the details, in the Holy Roman Empire, really it was like whoever is um, the prince or the duke of an area would determine what the religion is of an area. We think sometimes that after the Protestant Reformation, like there was just, um, you know, religious pluralism, but that's not the case. There's still an assumption of kind of a, a Christendom model. And so the, the confessional statements were really useful for knowing that everybody within the same, um, you know, area believed the same thing. And so, um, you know, this resulted in actual wars of religion. Um, and so one of the influences in pietism is saying that, what Luther had inaugurated in, um, in Germany has really um, gone off the rails because of this process of confessionalization. That now it's not about the priesthood of believers, but it's about really detailed doctrinal statements that are just leading to um, destruction. I, so there's a push toward, and this is true um, you know, in the broader evangelical movement too, it's kind of trans-denominational, is a desire to restore some unity. And so for that, there's a, a, a de-emphasis on doctrine. Um, and specifically within um, the mission friends who became eventually the covenant, there's a desire for unity in order to maximize the number of people that you can cooperate with for common mission. Saying like, we need to not be working against each other as Christians because we're different, um, you know, from different confessional traditions but we need to actually be working together um, for a common mission, for the witness of the church. Um, so one of the, one of the motivators is unity uh, to say rather than, and, and because they had experienced the people who formed the covenant had actually experienced, um, you know, being kept out of Lutheran churches when they began to um, subscribe to Waldenstrom's view of the atonement. So basically he says, um, you know, that it's not that Jesus died on the cross, not um, so that God could be reconciled to humanity, but so that humanity could be reconciled to God. That's in a nutshell. But it contradicted the Augsburg Confession, which was the standard of Lutheran orthodoxy at the time. And so that was a huge um, factor in leading those who formed the covenant to say, if we decide to stipulate the boundaries of our church based on particular doctrines, you know, we're going to leave outside some people that maybe we should, we should actually stay together and cooperate. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't divide the church in those ways. So unity was one motivation for the sake of mission um, because of real experiences of, uh, you know, corrosive division. Also um, moving forward in time, also there's a theme of humility, you know, the sense um, that, we might not have it right. And so we want to stay in conversation with as many people as possible um, within our fold. Um, you know, I forget now who said it, but he said it would be a sin to reject someone that Christ has accepted. Hmm. Right? So, so a desire to, to be in some other places, a church as big as the New Testament. Right? And then um, the other thing, the other motivation is really 
being able to hear scripture itself, not allowing a particular um, conclusion to mediate, to, to stand between us and scripture, but wanting to hear um, many perspectives so that ultimately we can hear the voice of God in scripture. Can I, I want to offer just a little tweak here as we go to Dean Edwards' response. I, I want to put, I put this question to both of you. What matters the most and, is, and keeps you together? And what is still important, but maybe secondary? You know, this is something that our, our tradition has dealt with. So any ways you would want to speak to, maybe how you see this approach to the Bible bearing on the present, I, I would, love, would love to hear. And, you know, coming at it as a pastor, I, uh, <laughs> the reality, you know, there, there's this ideal, uh, or at least idealism, perhaps I could say that you can have conversation and you can um, respect the various perspectives that people bring. I, I, I'm all about that. And even in that little book that you have there, the, what is the Bible? How should we understand it? That's what I try to describe in there. Um, early Anabaptists had something they called a, um, a kind of a congregation. They felt like, you know, people together could sort of discern the voice of God in scripture. I still believe that's the case. I think what, but what's on a practical level in the churches is that people come from so many different spaces and they're often formed by popular forms of evangelicalism. So it's hard to have those kinds of conversations because we get pretty fixed in our views that are formed from a popular voice or a very charismatic figure or something like that. So I would, you know, so the difference from these early places is that we don't have a whole town that that confesses similarly, you know, we've got so many different voices that are competing. So I might not really answer your question other than to say that I recognize it's difficult. So the appeal that I often make as a pastor is for the kind of uh, patience with each other that we can explore those questions. But honestly, not everybody shares that as a value. For a lot of people, it's about being right, not being gracious. So the idea is I need to get this right and you're telling me something I haven't heard before, so you must be wrong. And so it makes those kinds of conversations very difficult. One thing that this requires um, to actually be realized is that, well, when we think of the affirmations and one of them is freedom in Christ, the sixth affirmation, it's usually thought of that this is something that is extended to others rather than claimed. And I think that what this requires is that one has to be um, willing to maintain fellowship with someone who holds a view that they disagree with, like that it's not, um, you know, asserting one's own uh, freedom or view, but actually having the, the capacity of differentiation to have someone else be able to hold a view and say, you know, that there's something that transcends this. And that's our, um, our common life in Christ, you know, that, that because they are in Christ, that this is my brother and sister. Yeah. Yeah. You two have just spoken to two things that patience in the midst of difference and difficulties, extending freedom to other people. That's why we're having these conversations. So it's talking about like the, the covenant church. It looks different, which we want to appreciate our history, but the covenant is, is certainly changing. It's becoming more diverse, more multicultural. And can you tell me what you might think this means for reading and relating to the Bible? What does this open up? Opportunities? Uh, are there challenges that go with it? I'll jump in first on this, but one of the things that I talk about in my classes, as well as I've been experiencing more and more, and I think many people have, uh, 
in an, um, a less formal way. You might not be taking classes. And that's that the reality that we bring who we are to the reading of scripture, right? This notion of social location. Um, social location means all that I am and all that we are is part of how I approach scripture. Um, not just, um, uh, well, let's put it this way. The questions that I bring as well as what I'm hearing when I, when I read it, um, that's something that wasn't very common in, in evangelicalism classically in the sense that we can find exactly what the author intended. There's like this one fixed meaning. So it tended to be a pretty flat reading of scripture. Now we're realizing, oh, there are, there are questions that I asked because of where I'm coming from that my neighbors didn't ask and then and vice versa. So I think this opportunity, if I phrase it that way, and as you pose the question, the opportunity for us is to learn from each other what kinds of things that we are hearing from scripture, what kinds of emphases that um, we take, what kind of questions that are being brought, and, and have that shape our own um, journey of faith. That's the, that's the sort of part of evangelicalism, that, that, um, that journey of our own faith, I think that would be shared at least in, um, in covenant circles. So, I, so for me, it's an opportunity. But I also recognize it as a challenge because folks who have been in the, in the dominant place in our society are, are not used to having their assumptions challenged in many cases. So if I'm reading something and I have questions about say slavery, or I have questions about the way uh, women were treated and, and I challenge back and say, well, I'm hearing white folks talk about the slavery passages as like, um, uh, like a, a worker and a boss. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not the, the, the dynamic that's going on. But that's the way I've heard those passages preached many times in my life. So the challenge will be for people in those dominant places to, 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 um, to exercise that kind of humility to receive from folks who haven't been the dominant voice. So that's the challenge. The opportunity is we're going to get a, a much more um, uh, uh, picturesque way of reading the scripture. Yeah, I think um, without overstating the continuity, I think um, that change has been a constant within covenant history, um, moving from a mono-ethnic deno immigrant denomination and then expanding, you know, more broader, a broader Americanization and then becoming more multi-multi-racial. Uh, um, I think we have a lot of good precedents and roots and habits that we can draw on if we if we will draw on them um you know hmm. ethnic and racial divisions are some of the most persistent and pernicious that we experience in this context um, i think um the early example of conventicles um in the pietist church a pretty, for the time, a very radical democratization of scripture, where you could have, um, you know, uneducated women, people from across um, classes and families reading together. Um, but there's always been a stream um, that has valued reading in community and held on to that humility to say that ultimately um, uh, what scripture is, is a means of grace to mediate to the reader God's transforming work, right? that it's inspired and it's ongoing use. 
um, and that that is best done in, in community and from a spirit of humility that is listening to others. Um, so the, the more we can be reading scripture outside of silos um, and that we can resist the kind of sorting forces of sorting in our culture right now um, along all of the lines, um, race, ethnicity, urban, rural, um, over class, um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to receive um, the word of scripture and be transformed by it and actually enact it um, in obedience more fully. This has been a real privilege to be able to ask you these questions. I'm now going to switch and get some questions here from the audience. I'm going to pass things over to Pastor Megan. Y'all, so many things. Um, what do you think of David Gushy's view that American evangelicalism is essentially a rebranding of fundamentalism? Must classical evangelicals leave evangelicalism in order to separate from fundamentalism, or should we try to redeem the term? I, I tried to say a little bit of something like that in my own comments, that um, I do think that there's been a morphing of uh, at least in popular psyche and for a lot of people's own self-definition of evangelical with fundamental. And um, so whatever distinctions there were in the early 20th century, at least on a popular level, doesn't seem like they exist anymore. Personally, I, I am not trying to recapture that term. What I said earlier about apocalyptic, I think that I think uh, we're never going to get apocalyptic to mean uh, unveiling or revelation except for the people who actually study these things. So the specialists, right? It's always gonna mean disaster to people. And so I think there's gonna be certain meanings. So I'm in the camp that I tend not to use the word, although I'm in a denomination that does, but it's funny because some of us already have been shortcutting and saying covenant and saying covenanters. So I'm, I'm not, you know, not, not uh, putting anybody on blast, but I do think that there's, it's difficult for many of us to actually use the term, but that's, that's um, my observations. I mean, to distinguish evangelical from fundamentalism or put, um, you know, find out where the Venn diagram, we need to give more definition to fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. When evangelicalism was revived in the 40s and 50s, it was specifically to distinguish themselves from the fundamentalists, you know, whom they saw to be to anti-culture, anti-modernists, whereas the new evangelicals wanted to engage culture. There's a definition of fundamentalist from George Marson that says ant militant anti-modernists. So they were still anti-modernists, but just less militant. Um, so, but but it was, you know, not just an ascribed label, but they claimed the label as fundamentalists. So, you know, if we want to say, well, evangelicals are really fundamentalists, I, I don't know um, what the what the benefit there is. At different points in history, the covenant as a denomination has said, you know, for example, we don't need to um join the fundamentalists. We don't, we're not going to join the National Association of Evangelicals um, because we simply aren't going to go beyond our confessional statement of scripture as, um, as the authority. Um, but that's not to say that there haven't been people within the covenant who have identified as um, fundamentalists or evangelicals. Um, one prominent covenanter was the president of the National Association for Evangelicals. So some maybe they would have more stake in that term in terms of what it's distinguishing us from. Um, but I think as a denomination, um, it's a good, it's a conversation worth having and personal for my own um, 
historical perspective, um, I think there's enough throughout our history that distinguishes us actually from, from broader evangelicalism, that there are other um, roots that we can rely on um, for continuity of identity. There are a few people asking about like, what is testing the unity of the covenant today and how we see the direction of making certain scriptural interpretations, uh, particularly around LGBTQ peoples and their relationship with our churches, a requirement for ordination or employment. Um, how do you understand this um, in your current positions and uh, as covenanters yourself? Well, I definitely think that, that that's the right topic. I mean, that's where we're at right now. I think the thing that um, uh, has been striking me is that um, we talk about our annual gatherings as being the, you know, the place where decisions are made. That's the final authority, right? It's the annual meeting. Is that um, having the having the opportunity to deliberate on tough questions like this? That question, I think, would be very welcome, and um, uh, at least by many. I, I I I think some folks who have already drawn conclusions in certain places don't don't like to have other viewpoints um, expressed, you know, in other words, don't debate, don't debate something I'm already settled on, right? But I do think that we have the ability to have more public kind of um, discussion on things. But my caveat to that is our willingness to say things might not go our way. And, and I think that's, that's the way, um, I, I, think, I think there's precedent for that kind of thinking. Although I, I confess that that's difficult, right? To say, I'm going, I mean, if it was something years ago, it would have been something like the end times, right? I used to be in a denomination that said it, that the rapture of Jesus was going to happen, you know, rapture of the church was going to happen a certain way. And they described, you know, fancy terms, premillennial, you know, imminent and words like that. And, and uh, you had to, and you, you couldn't really have room to discuss. Now we can have a variety of discussions about end times. And we don't feel like there's as much at stake, right? But um, but it's the same kind of thing. Can we have those kind of discussions? My answer to that is, I hope so. Like Dr. Edwards, I mean, obviously these are the the current debates that are placing strain on our unity and on our commitments um, to one another, um, to common mission. And I think um, what I would want to say is that we need to be cautious. I think we should um, be on guard against a kind of uh, retrospective blind spot of imagining that like, you know, those, those former debates like the end times or should we use TVs, um, you know, for ministry or is the devil gonna work through them? Like that, that now we might laugh at some of those debates but that those were like utterly serious um, and really intensely debated at the time and had, and all of the theological questions had, um, you know, as they always do, different um, cultural, social, attachments or resonances. So I think, um, you know, I don't think that our, our present issues, I don't think we're outmatched by them. I don't think we should be outmatched by them. Um, and I don't think, um, I don't think it was easier for people in the past than it is for us now. That's, that's Ooh. my viewpoint. That's a really hopeful response. I'm like, all right, my sister, 
Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't say anything for what we're going to do with, um, you know, do with the, the our current um, debates and suspicions and tensions. Um, you know, I think that's the other thing that at each of, when we look at covenant history in this long view and see the ways that in each um, point of tension where the church could have divided, that people were intentional about committing and recommitting to one another. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, it can't be taken for granted that that was the outcome, like an inevitable outcome um, in the 20s and the 50s and the 80s. Um, and so I think, you know, these distinctives needs to need to be chosen and rechosen. Um, like we need to decide that it's that it's worthwhile. Mm. Um, um, so it's just saying like, yes, these not to say these are unimportant issues, but the cost is too high, um, you know, to, to make it the battle that we're gonna, I shouldn't say hill to die on, but that, that this is um, enough to throw away our unity um, and continuity. I, I, I think, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I, I do think, um, I don't think there's something unique about the present over and against um, past conflicts that we have weathered unified. Well, thank you both so much. Thanks for listening to the Theology Lab podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to this podcast or you can help us out by leaving a positive review. Learn more about Theology Lab at highrock.org slash theology lab. Until next time.